Hello everyone, welcome to episode 609 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Polly. This season we're chatting with the performers of the Cold Wave 6 Festival in Chicago. Thursday, September 28th kicks things off at the Empty Bottle featuring MC 900 Foot Jesus and Ghost. Friday the 29th through Sunday, October 1st at Metro, the featured acts include Stabbing Westward, Front 242, KMFDM, Cold Cave, Severed Heads, Ogre, and more. Late night Friday and Saturday at Smart Bar, you'll find The Gothicals, Curse Mackie, Bombardier, and End User. For the full lineup and ticket links, head to coldwaves.net. This week we're chatting with Thursday night kickoff performer Mark Griffin. This is MC 900 Foot Jesus.
I started out as a trumpet player, actually, when I was a kid. I My first thing I got really fascinated with was Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, actually. I, I mean, I was into all different things. I was a total band nerd in high school and uh, listened to different things. Uh, played with a band that played some uh, soul type stuff. We played some Otis Redding tunes and tried to play some Tower Power songs. And But then when I got out of school, I, I was pretty, I was a pretty good player. I was a really good sight reader and I was getting fairly regular uh, freelance gigs with the union to play shows. And, but I was like, just really, I kind of, I don't know. I was not real happy with where I was in life at that point. Uh, this is like after I graduated college and, and uh, didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And like I say, I was so unhappy with, um, uh, what I was, where I was in life at that point, I, I wound up at the end of that year, I moved, I just decided randomly, a friend of mine said, I got some relatives in Dallas, and I've been wanting to move down there, you feel like you're up for it? And I said, yeah, man, I'll go with you. I'll just move to Dallas for no freaking reason other than to get out of where I'm at right now, you know. So I moved down here, and I started, uh, found this local, this Dallas punk rock club at the time was called DJs. It was a tiny little joint, you know, but all the bands, mostly Texas bands, band would come up and play from Austin. And, and there was a bunch of Dallas and Fort Worth area bands that would play there. And, and I'd go every weekend, you know, and see whoever was playing and starting to absorb this sort of musical counterculture, you know, that I had not really been exposed to at all up until that time. That set me off on, down the road of getting into alternative music. Towards the end of that year, I decided to go back to school and work on a graduate degree in music theory. And I, I started uh, started back at University of North Texas there after after a year of living down here in Dallas, um, and working towards a master in music theory degree. And, and during that year, I got an offer to be in a band that was sort of a Dallas new wave band that was doing really well and I, I musically I really liked them but they were also making good money as well and I took that job and, and kind of decided to quit school after having to split my hours between late night gigs and getting back for an 8 a.m. class and whatnot you know and I played with them for a couple of years I came back to dad they went and I wound up moving out to California I was out there with them for a little while and uh, nothing was really happening for them out there and i I kind of decided to move back here and started doing various things. Like, and when I moved back to Dallas was 1983, I think. I got a job at an indie record store here in town called BVV Records, and it was a great store. And of course, this is way before the internet and everything. So, being a musician who's into alternative music, really the best thing, best job you could get at that point was to work in a record store. And especially a store that sold like all the import records at the time would come in without any shrink wrap on them, you know. So you get a big box of whatever records, new releases are coming in that week, and you just pop them out of the jacket, stick them on the turntable, and listen to them, you know, to your heart's content. And it really opened my mind up to a lot of different things that were going on in alternative music besides just my little, you know, sort of new wave niche that I had been mining and and i'd also been doing my own little compositions off on my own and little collaborations with other local artists here and there and and eventually you know i don't know if you've ever worked in a record store but it 
if you've ever seen the movie uh, High Fidelity or read that book, it's really just like that. And so anyway, I got real jaded and real cynical about stuff and hated lots of stuff. And I was getting into these really obscure things. Uh, and that's when I started really listening to a lot of industrial music. Uh, and so this was mid to late 80s. And then about 1988, some point during that year, I had gotten to the point where, you know, I was I was doing a lot of recording stuff at home on a four track and making little experiments. and And I had gotten to the point with my cynicism and my jadedness that I was going, man, I, you know, I, I hate everything. It's like, and I, I find myself constantly saying I could do a better record than that. And I, it finally occurred to me that I should probably just put my money where my mouth was and actually try to do a better record. So I, I, I saved up a bunch of money and I borrowed some money from a friend and bought a sampler and, and had enough left over to press up a 12 inch. Came out with a, the first 12 inch that I did. And at the time, so at, the, at that time, I was listening to all the wax track stuff, all the network stuff, and, and, and a, a lot of other stuff like Soviet France and, and, and Nurse with Wound and, you know, stuff that people know about these days that are into that kind of thing. But so it's not, they're not super obscure, but stuff that I was, I was really liking. And, and so anyway, the, the concept behind MC 900 for Jesus at the time was to sort of combine a hip hop element. So make it make it in, in a sense to make it sort of like public enemy meets ministry. And that, that was my vague idea for what I was going to do. And I, and, and you know, it's kind of turned out like that, but that was, that was basically what I was trying to do. And, and the reason I wanted to do that was because there wasn't anybody else that was really doing that sort of a meld of, of those two styles. Um, I guess maybe meet B manifesto, maybe, maybe Jack was doing the uh, thing. It was sort of, you could compare it to that. And, and I knew there was people and consolidated, you know, I knew there was people that I felt a sort of kinship with for sure. But anyway, so I, I did that and I wound up, people liked it, you know, I mean, there again, I was so lucky to be working at a record store because, um, you know, I, I was talking to distributors on the phone a couple of times a week, you know, people who could were in a position to distribute my record. And I, I just told all these guys, several of these guys, you know, let me send you a couple of copies of this. If you like it, then you sell it for me, you know, and, um, and a couple of them did. And so that's how I wound up getting a record deal with Network and wound up putting a couple of albums out through them. So that's, that's kind of like the whole train <laughs> of how I went from liking Herb Alpert to becoming MC 900 foot Jesus.
my plan was when I put out that first EP was I'm, I'm hoping that I can sell enough to get my money back and just do another one and maybe keep doing them. You know, that would be, that was my best case scenario that I was hoping for at the time. And then, so I, I, I wasn't really aiming at trying to get on a record label and to grow, you know, in any, in, in any sort of big, big time music biz way. I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to set up something that would sort of sustain itself and allow me to keep, you know, putting out records for a while. And, and, but record labels were interested and I, I felt like, man, screw it. I'll just go ahead and do go that route. You know, that way I don't have to worry about how exactly how many records I'm selling. I just have to kind of generally do what they want me to do. I mean, as far as I have to go out on tour at the time when I did that, I had absolutely no plans to ever do a live show. I, I w- my plan was to just do records and just be one of those mysterious people that nobody even knows what they look like, you know. But he puts out these weird records every now and then. But of course, you can't have a record deal without telling, without agreeing with the record label to go out, and <laughs> go go do shows around the country or whatever and promote your record. So I knew that changed all that right away. You were sort of peaking at the time when the record industry was completely different and otherwise pretty healthy and doing pretty well back then. Yeah, no shit, man. I totally, I totally lucked out and got, came in just at the right time there, um, <laughs> right, right before it all more or less came crashing down. I mean, it put it in the context of how things are today. It was pretty amazing, you know, for like a little niche artist like me. I mean, I think, uh, so Network did those first two albums and then um i think that the biggest selling one we probably only sold like about thirty thousand copies but i had a i had a i mean people liked me you know in the business and and uh, the there again one good thing about my deal with network was they just licensed two albums from me i wasn't i wasn't signed for any long-term contract with them so after i did that second album i was basically a free agent they wanted to sign me again, but I by that point I had a bunch of major labels interested. I was talking to a lot of people and and really kind of got wined and dined by them. So anyway, uh, wound up signing with American Recordings, Rick Rubin's label. This guy Mark Geiger, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was one of the guys who helped organize the um, uh, Lollapaloozas from the beginning, and he's kind of a behind the scenes guy. But he was working A and R for Rick Rubin's label at the time. American recordings and he's really great dude wound up signing with them. And, uh, I mean, it was quite an eye opening thing, man, to get the full on major label experience, you know? (laughs) And at the time they were still spending money, man. I mean, I don't know this, that they shot a couple of videos during the time that I was there for me. Uh, one, one of which never got aired was a, um, video for this we, we did actually did three videos come to think of it we did two different videos for this tune called but if you go which is off that third album rick rubin rick didn't like the first one that got shot which is kind of too bad because it had a little cameo from karen black that actress in there and she was really nice to meet and hang out with her for a few hours but then a few months later they wanted to do the other one and they got spike and, and what they usually do is they'll send you um sends you a few pages of, of like one page treatments that different directors have done for what they plan to do 
for your song that we're going to do this video for. I had a few pages of treatments from various directors and one of them was Spikes and it was just, it was great. You know, it's like, it was exactly what it wound up being just that, that treatment of what he was going to do pretty much spelled out. We wound up shooting this video and that was awesome. That was an awesome experience, man. Just hanging out with those guys. It was one of my, um, real high points of being on that label, which was there again, I would really lucked out because it was another great record. Everybody hates the record labels, but I had two great record label experiences. I have no, no complaints about American recordings either, but there is a funny story about, about that day of shooting or actually it was two days shooting that video with spike and all that crew. Uh, we got to the very end, you know, I was all burnt out and I'm a huge alcoholic at this point. So it's like, I'm real tired and it's like, and we were in that step van that's used in the video that that guy's driving that delivery truck, that step van. And he was going to return it, but he said, well, so we're going to this bar. We're going to, going to have a rap party. And, and I was going, man, I'm just burnt out. I, I think I'll just go back to the hotel. So basically one of the stupidest things I've ever done was I passed up a chance to party with Spike Jones after shooting my music video in LA and it's like one of it has to be if not the stupidest thing I've ever done it's like one of them I basically wanted to go and I've stopped drinking since then but basically all I wanted to do at that point I was kind of peopled out from being in front of the camera all day long and just physically tired and I just wanted to go back and get in my hotel room by myself and sip on whiskey anyway uh <laughs> I don't even know why I went off on that tangent, but there's there's that story. I had gotten to the point where it was about time to start working on a fourth album, which would have been the second one that I, have done, I had done for American Recordings. But right around that time was where the, the shit was starting to hit the fan with the music business. And um, Rick was down at some point during there when i was just kind of off on my own doing my own thing working on tunes and whatnot he started dismantling the record label and wound up laying off the entire staff i had been given an advance to start working on a fourth album and i and i did a few a little bit of work in the studio and whatnot and then um kind of i was kind of creatively running out of gas myself at the same time I just, I just was not making any headway. I had spent some money in the studio and I kind of was sort of nonplussed with the results that I'd gotten. And so I set it aside and stopped working on it. And, and then the next thing I knew, I mean, the record label was more or less dismantled and I just kind of went off and left it, man. I, I just kind of had run out of gas myself. And so they weren't calling me, bugging me. And I wasn't calling them with any, progress to be able to report any progress or anything and so we just kind of went off and left it you know and over the last couple of years i had slacked off on drinking so much and then finally because of this last job i got i just wasn't didn't want to even drink at all while i'm doing it or even any days close to days that i'm doing it so not drinking at all and it's like it's just totally awakened this sort of energy level in me that just was so beaten down by the daily alcohol dose there for so many years that so i've just gotten really in the mood to you know be doing something musical again that's what led me back around to this point 
you played your first live show after what, 15 years? Yeah, the last ones we did uh, were 2001, and so yeah, it was uh, in February we played at the Kessler. It was first was it's first time since 2001 that we actually played a live show, and it's it's a little bit different now than it was then. Uh, kind of went in these several different stages for how my live show was. At, at the very beginning, it was just me and DJ Zero. It's all it was, and. We had backing tracks, you know, to fill out the rhythm, you know, the beats and whatnot for the tunes. And I would do the vocals and he would just do, you know, turntablism and run the uh, backing tracks. And then um, I added a couple of guys uh, after that. I added a sax player and a live drummer. And then when I when I got on the big label and I had a bunch of tour support money behind me, I decided to go full on live band there for couple of years and had like a piano guitar bass drums and the sax and also a dj and and it was a big ensemble touring in a big old bus with a big trailer you know and, and uh, but but now uh but but what i've done it but i had kind of i had stopped doing my a lot a lot of my songs are more electronics based and uh, i had stopped doing a lot of that material to fo focus more on the live band and so now I, both for budget reasons, but also just for for wanting to get back to this certain parts of these parts of my repertoire, I, I've, I've I've decided to you know we've got uh, it's back to a four piece. So anyway, it's kind of like I'm 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 actually more happy doing what I'm doing for right now with like I say with this setup and and the guys that I'm the guys that I'm working with are all. The two of them are new people, and then the sax player is a guy that I've worked with all along. So it's kind of like a nice, it's a nice combination, and it's and it's a very new sort of approach. It's not like what we were doing before. So I'm I'm really digging it. You know, it's it's coming along real well. I accidentally got my shit together. Would I get a medal or a pat on the back and a little feather? I could stick in my cap or pin to my shirt. Go out in the yard and poke it in the dirt. Or leave it in the woods where it couldn't be found. If it fell over, would it make a sound? And if it did, would it be the sound that you like? Or should I do it over until I get it right? You say everything I know is wrong. So do me a favor and play along for a minute as the rusty gears turn. Don't be alarmed if you smell something burning upstairs. It's a little BB rolling around in a boxcar. See us together. Maybe it wouldn't be hard to explain if I only had a brain. <laughs>
shirt that says I'm with stupid Always nearby wherever I go He's looking out for me, don't you know Mr. Excitement, never in a rut Johnny on the spot with an arrow in the butt Ouch, I guess your love is true Now, if I could only get a clue On this episode, you heard I'm Going Straight to Heaven, The City Sleeps, and If I Only Had a Brain. MC 900 Foot Jesus can be found at facebook.com slash mc900ftjesus. Our opening music is Monster Zero by Acumen Nation. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app with the links found in the show notes. Join us next week as we chat with Brown DeClerc from Pankow. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Waves, fallen Chicago musician, and sound man Jamie Duffy. Here's Angelina Kuhn sharing a memory of Jamie. He always loved Groundhog Day, the movie. Lots of people don't know that that was actually filmed in Woodstock, Illinois, which is right right by my mom's house. So I took my skateboard and I went skating around the square and they had all this stuff like blocked off. And some guy came up to me and he's like, you know, do you want to be an extra? And like you know, kind of like skate around. And I'm like, well, I would. I'm like, but I got something to do in like 15 minutes. And he's like, oh, all right. I'm like, well, what are you guys doing? He's like, oh, we're filming a movie. And it ended up being Groundhog Day. So I knew the history of it, you know, growing up. And then when I found out he was really into it, I was like, you know what? I'm like, they still do like the Punxsutawney Phil like thing, you know, every year. I'm like, I should surprise him. So we went to like, I I took him to the Super 8, (laughs) which they have these like fantasy rooms. And we stayed in like, uh, this like medieval themed room that had like, I don't even know, like suits of armor. And it was just totally like the most cheesy, ridiculous thing ever. And he turns on the TV and he's like, Hey, he's like groundhog days on. And I was like, huh? I said, well, you know what day tomorrow is? And he's like, Oh my God, is tomorrow groundhog day? I'm like, yeah. He's like, Oh my God, are we like in the town? I was like, yes, we are. And he's like, so excited about it. And we just had just the absolute best like weekend, like hanging out and, you know, him getting to like see the <laughs> the whole place and where it was filmed. He's like, oh my God, like that's where he jumped off the thing. And that's where he stepped in the hole. And 
he was really happy. That was that was definitely a good a good memory of mine hanging out with him.